אז דיבר ישוע אל המון העם ואל תלמידיו. אמר להם, הסופרים והפרושים יושבים על כיסא משה. לכן כל אשר יאמרו לכם עשו ושמרו, אך כמעשיהם אל תעשו, כי אומרים הם ואינם עושים. הם קושרים מסעות כבדים ומעמיסים אותם על שכמי האנשים, אך אינם רוצים להניע אותם אף באצבעם. ועושים את כל מעשיהם כדי להראות לבני אדם, ובהרחיבם את תפיליהם, ובהעריכם את ציציותיהם. אוהבים הם את מושב הראש בסעודות, ואת המושבים הראשונים בבתי הכנסת. וברכות שלום בשווקים ולהיקרא רבי על ידי אנשים. אך אתם, אל יקרא לכם רבי, כי אחד הוא רבכם, ואתם אחים כולכם. ואל תקראו אב לאיש מכם בארץ, כי אחד הוא אביכם שבשמיים. גם אל תקראו מורה תורה, כי אחד הוא מורה שלכם, המשיח. הגדול בכם יהיה משרתכם, המרומם את עצמו יושפל, והמשפיל את עצמו ירומם. אוי לכם, סופרים ופרושים צבועים, כי סוגרים אתם את מלכות השמיים בפני בני אדם, הן אתן עיניכם נכנסים לתוכה, וגם לבאים עיניכם מניחים להיכנס. אוי לכם, סופרים ופרושים צבועים, כי סובבים אתם בים וביבשה, כדי לגייר איש אחד, וכאשר יתגייר אתם עושים אותו לבין גהנום כפליים מכם. אוי לכם, מורי דרך עיוורים, האומרים הנשבע בהיכל אין בכך כלום, אבל הנשבע בזהב ההיכל חייב. כסילים ועיוורים, מה גדול יותר, הזהב או ההיכל המקדש את הזהב? וכן גם אומרים אתם, הנשבע במזבח אין בכך כלום, אבל הנשבע בקורבן שעליו חייב. עיוורים, מה גדול יותר, הקורבן או המזבח המקדש את הקורבן? לכן הנשבע במזבח נשבע בו ובכל אשר עליו, והנשבע בהיכל נשבע בו ובשוכן בו, והנשבע בשמיים נשבע בכיסא האלוהים וביושב עליו. אוי לכם סופרים ופרושים צבועים, כי נותנים אתם מעשרות ממינתה ושבט וחמון, ומזניחים את הדברים החשובים יותר שבתורה, את המשפט, את החסד ואת האמונה. צריך היה לעשות את אלה האחרונים, ואין לעזוב את הדברים האחרים. מורי דרך עיוורים העוצרים את היתוש במסננת ובולעים את הגמל. אוי לכם, סופרים ופרושים צבועים, כי מטהרים אתם את הכוס ואת הקערה מבחוץ, ותוכן מלא גזל ותאוונות. פרוש עיוור, טהר תחילה את תוך הכוס, כדי שתהיה טהורה גם מבחוץ. אוי לכם, סופרים ופרושים צבועים, כי דומים אתם לקברים מסוידים הנראים יפים מבחוץ, ואילו תוכם מלא עצמות מתים וחול טומאה. כך גם אתם, מבחוץ אתם נראים צדיקים לעיני הבריות, אבל בפנים מלא צביעות ועוול. אוי לכם, סופרים ופרושים צבועים, כי בונים אתם את קברי הנביאים ומייפים את מצבות הצדיקים. אומרים אתם, אילו חיינו בימי אבותינו, לא היינו שותפים עמהם לשפוך את דם הנביאים. 
כך אתם מעידים על עצמכם שבנים אתם לרוצחי הנביאים. אף אתם מלאו את צעת אבותיכם, נחשים בני צפעונים, איך תימלטו מדין גיהנום? לכן הנני שולח לכם נביאים וחכמים וסופרים, ומהם תהרגו ותצלבו, ומהם תלקו בבתי הכנסת שלכם, ותרדפו מעיר לעיר. למען יבוא עליכם כל דם נקי שנשפך על הארץ מדם הבל הצדיק, אדם זכריה בן ברכיה, אשר רצחתם אותו בין ההיכל למזבח. אמן אני אומר לכם, בוא יבוא כל זה על הדור הזה. ירושלים, ירושלים, ההורגת את הנביאים וסוקלת את השלוחים אליה. כמה פעמים חפצתי לקבץ את בנייך כתרנגולת המקבצת את אפרוחיה תחת כנפיה, ולא רציתם. הנה ביתכם יינטש לכם, ואני אומר לכם, מעתה לא תראוני עד אשר תאמרו, ברוך הבא בשם אדוני. הבשורה של ישוע המשיח על פי התלמיד מתתיהו פרק 23, פסוקים 1 עד 39. Then Yeshua addressed the crowds and his Talmidim. The Torah teachers and the Purushim, he said, sit in the seat of Moshe. So whatever they tell you, do care to do it. But don't do what they do because they talk but don't act. They tie heavy loads onto people's shoulders but won't lift a finger to help carry them. Everything they do is done to be seen by others, for they make their tefillin broad and their tzitziot long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and they love being greeted differentially in the marketplaces and being called rabbi. But you are not to let yourselves be called rabbi, for you have one rabbi, and you are all each other's brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father because you have one Father, and He is in heaven. Nor are you to let yourselves be called leaders, because you have one leader, and He is the Messiah. The greatest among you must be your servant, for whoever promotes himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be promoted. But woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Purushim, for you are shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, neither entering yourselves nor allowing those who wish to enter to do so. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Purushim! You go about over land and sea to make one proselyte, and when you succeed, you make him twice as fit for Gehenom as you are. Woe to you, you blind guides! You say if someone swears by the temple, he is not bound by his oath, but if he swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound. You blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple which makes the gold holy? And you say if someone swears by the altar, he is not bound by his oath, but if he swears by the offering on his altar, he is bound. Blind men, which is more important, the sacrifice? or the altar which makes the sacrifice holy. So someone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and someone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who lives in it, and someone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Purushim! You pay your tithes of mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah justice, mercy, and trust. These are the things you should have attended to, 
without neglecting the others. Blind guides, straining out a gnat meanwhile swallowing a camel. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pulushim. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Blind Parush, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may be clean too. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pulushim. You are like whitewashed tombs who look fine on the outside, but inside are full of dead people's bones and all kinds of rottenness. Likewise, you appear to people from the outside to be good and honest, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and far from Torah. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Purushim. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the tzaddikim, and you say, Had we lived when our fathers did, we would never have taken part in killing the prophets. In this you testify against yourselves that you are worthy descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, finish what your father started. You snakes, sons of snakes, how can you escape being condemned to Gehenom? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and Torah teachers. Some of them you will kill indeed. You will have them executed on stakes as criminals. Some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so on you will fall the guilt for all the innocent blood that has ever been shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Hevel to the blood of Zechariah ben Bilchaya, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Yes, I tell you that all this will fall on this generation. Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children, just as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you refused. Look, God is abandoning your house to you, leaving it desolate. For I tell you, from now on, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. The Good News According to the Talmid Matityahu Chapter 23 Verses 1 through 39 All you serious seekers of truth out there, I bid you a shalom shalom uvruchim ashavim. Peace and welcome back to yet another exhilarating and invigorating, scandalous and controversial seventh installment of Finding Higher Ground. Here is Seattle's own Manic Messianic on a mission to make the most famous Jew in the world even more famous. Your host... Gotti Hire.
of course, when I talk about the most famous Jew in the world, I am referring to none other than Messiah Yeshua himself, or as the Gentile church likes to call him so fondly in his Greek name, Jesus Christ. Blessed be his name a thousandfold forever and ever till the ends of the earth. Amen. Just in case you haven't figured it out yet for the non-believers in the room, this man that we call Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ, is no ordinary man, for he is the God of the Bible personified. He is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the very reason why I am doing what I'm doing. The whole objective of these podcasts is to tell you, dear listener, what he's personally done for me, what he's personally done for the world, yes, personally, and what he can personally do for you. All you have to do is believe it and let him into your heart. And he loves you. And I'm going to prove that to you, dear listener, with each and every podcast that I make. So this podcast... This episode, episode 7, is going to be about separation theology. It's going to be a direct continuation of episode 6, which is about replacement theology. I do hope that you enjoyed the knowledge that you have managed to acquire from uh, that last podcast. Before I go uh, deeper into uh, episode 7 and separation theology, I just want to go ahead and give some thank yous to the people who deserve it. Shout out to audacityteam.org for creating such amazing, free, professional-grade audio mixing software. Thank you very much, guys. I, of course, have to uh, thank Spotify and Anchor for allowing me to be able to create my podcasts and use their platforms for exposure. So, Anchor and Spotify, thank you so very much. I'd like to give a special nod to uh, HebrewForChristians.com. That's Hebrew, the number four, Christians.com. And a one John J. Parsons, who actually wrote this article that I am uh, sharing with you. I just feel the necessity to make that disclaimer that this is not my work. And uh, this person, John J. Parsons, first published this article in 2005, and he, I must say he did a wonderful job with it. So thank you, sir. I also would like to acknowledge oneforisrael.org. This ministry is the spearhead in bringing the gospel to both Israelis and Palestinians alike. 
and the work that they do is the fulfillment of prophecy itself. Shefa brachot b'shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Many blessings in the name of Messiah Yeshua. And of course, I cannot forget the people at EpidemicSound.com for such amazing, beautiful music. Every single artist on that website is, an, is an, a genius. And uh, uh, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for making such beautiful music. Thank you very much. That's EpidemicSound.com. All right, let's go down the rabbit hole, shall we? Just to summarize episode six very quickly about replacement theology, we can look at one verse real quick. That would be the good news of Yohanan, John, uh, chapter 10, verse 16. Messiah Yeshua clearly states, Also I have other sheep which are not from this pen. I need to bring them and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock, one shepherd. That was one flock, one shepherd, not one flock will replace the other flock. I need to make something abundantly clear here. This is a perfect example of hermeneutics. You cannot take the text out of the context in which it was written. So the context is Jewish, and Yeshua is Jewish and he's talking to Jews. In verse 16 of John 10, when he's talking about other sheep, he's talking about the Gentiles nothing else. The reference to this pen meaning Israel. That's it. That's all. No complications. Let's keep it simple, people. From Messiah Yeshua's perspective, you were either of the house of Israel or you were not. You were either a Jew or you were not. I'm putting a specific emphasis on this verse because there are certain denominations of quote-unquote Christianity out there that believe that this verse pertains to them that this, uh, these other sheep are, are them, and uh, no, you're not the other sheep. The other sheep are the Gentiles, and the pen is Israel, period. Adhering to the rule of hermeneutics, there is no other way that this verse can be understood. So there you have it, believer and non-believer. You heard it out of the Messiah's mouth himself. There is no such thing as replacement theology. One flock does not replace the other. A special shout-out to my brother, A.J. Sela Hall, from Shreveport, Louisiana. Thank you, Achi, for bringing this verse to my attention and pointing out exactly what Yeshua Messiah says. One flock, one shepherd. Blessings, brother. Separation Theology A second theological option regarding the relationship of the Church and Israel is to claim that the Church and Israel refer to different groups of people. This distinction is the essence of what is sometimes called dispensationalism. Oho! This word dispensationalism has been popping up here a lot lately. It's very funny that I should be sitting here sharing this with you about this specific theological school of thought. I'm kind of learning this with you as I go. And if you were to look at the uh, website itself, you would see a little schematic here, a circle that represents Israel, and then there's a barrier, and then there's the circ another circle on the other side of the barrier that represents the church, with two points stating the covenants and promises of ethnic Israel are not transferred to the church. The other point is, the church is the new spiritual entity with a distinct purpose and destiny. 
Well, that doesn't sound too biblical now, does it? Unlike covenant theology that sometimes resorts to the allegorical method of interpretation, and then it refers to the above schematic, dispensational theology consistently uses the quote-unquote grammatical historical approach to scripture. That is, when reading a text of scripture, first the grammar is studied, and then certain historical questions are asked. For example, what is the historical context of this text? Who was the author? To whom was it written? What is the literary style? What did this text mean to the original audience? If it is a promise, to whom was it given? Is it conditional or unconditional? Was it for a fixed period of time? Was it intended for an individual or for a people? Is it applicable to others outside that circle? The goal of this approach is to ascertain the normal meaning of the words, phrases, and sentences in the historical context as intended by the original author. The grammatical historical method of reading scripture inevitably leads to a clear distinction between Israel and the church. Based on the inductive evidence of the scriptures, ethnic Israel is not seen to be identified with the church since the terms, quote, Israel, unquote, and, quote, church, unquote, are simply not interchangeable. For example, in the book of Acts, both Israel and the church exist simultaneously, but the terms Israel and church always refer to two distinct groups of people. The church is understood as a new creation that began with the advent of the Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit, during Shavuot, Pentecost, and will continue until it's translated to heaven at the time of the rapture. Quote-unquote rapture, yes? Not that I don't believe that it doesn't happen, just that that word does not appear in scripture. The biblical coordinates for said rapture provided are Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. The church is not under the covenantal obligations given to national Israel at Sinai, i.e. the Mosaic Covenant, since this covenant was ratified only with national Israel. The promises made to national Israel are fulfilled to Israel, not to the church. The word Israel always means Israel in the scriptures, whereas the word church always refers to the church. There is not a single instance in the entire Bible where Israel refers to anything other than the Jewish people. This is a true statement. Unlike the view of covenant theology that believes that the church predated the coming of Messiah, I'm not exactly sure how that works, dispensational theologians point out it began with the ministry of Yeshua himself, Matthew 16, 18, and is singularly based on Yeshua's death, resurrection, and ascension. I would, I would, I think personally I would interject and I would put uh, singularly based on Yeshua's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, but that's just my humble two cents. What do I know? Biblical coordinates provided that refer to Yeshua's death, resurrection, and ascension are Ephesians 1, 20-23, and Colossians 1, 28. The church is a called-out group of people from every tribe and tongue who have been baptized into the body of Messiah through the agency of Ruach HaKodesh, that's Hebrew for the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Acts 1, 8, and Acts 2, 38. Shaul of Tarshish, Shaul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, 
Paul, referring to the doctrine about the mystery of the body of Messiah, means that it was not revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Ephesians 3.3.6, Colossians 1.26. Israel, on the other hand, is a called-out nation, Exodus 19.6, that entered into specific historical covenants made with Adonai. The grammatical historical reading of scriptures provides a framework for understanding eschatology that is very different than that of covenant theology. For example, Daniel's 70th week is understood to be yet fulfilled during the coming Great Tribulation period. This explains certain teachings that Yeshua gave which apply to, you, to Jews living in Israel at the time of quote-unquote Jacob's trouble, see Matthew 24. I've never necessarily heard it as re uh, referred to as Jacob's trouble before. That's a very interesting terminology to me. This also explains the excitement that many dispensationalists have, have regarding the present existence of national Israel, since according to Yeshua himself, Israel must be restored to the land before he returns. The restoration of national Israel in 1948 is therefore considered to be a super sign, Ezekiel 36, 16, 28, that would be the dry bones prophecy, that we are nearing the end of days. The re I'll re I'm going to read that again. The restoration of national Israel in 1948 is therefore considered to be a super sign that we are nearing the end of days when Yeshua will return again. And unlike the covenant theology view that regards the ascension of Yeshua to mean that he is presently ruling from the throne of David, Dispensationalists foresee the second coming as the time when Yeshua will take up that take up that authority in Jerusalem during the 1,000-year millennial reign, Revelation 20. This trust in the plain reading of scripture rather than the allegorical method likewise has interpretive implications since it makes a distinction between the kingdom of God and the present age of tribulation. Please note that premillennial eschatology is consistent with the way Orthodox Jews understand and interpret their Bibles. The Orthodox Jew is awaiting the advent of the Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David, who will restore national Israel, rebuild the temple, and save the Jewish people from all their enemies. Before he arrives, however, there will be a 70 birth pangs of the Messiah during Chavlei Mashiach, the time of Jacob's trouble. After Mashiach appears, however, and defeats the enemies of Israel in the Great Magog War, I've heard all about Nuhemet Gogu Magog growing up over there, Israel will experience Yemota Mashiach, the days of Messiah, a golden age of peace and blessings when Israel will be promoted and all the nations will coexist in peace. Yemota Mashiach is to be distinguished from Olam Haba, the world to come, which corresponds to the eternal state, wherein paradise lost is fully restored. The Jewish sages believe that in the two olams, the two worlds, this world is called Ha'olam Hazeh, and the next world is called Ha'olam Haba. Messianic transitional world somewhere at the intersection. In other words, the plain reading of scripture leads Jews who hold to a high view of scripture to regard the future promises made to Israel to be literally fulfilled one day and this is an argument in favor of a dispensational understanding of the future of national Israel. Much more could be said on this subject, of course, but the upshot is that God has unfinished business with ethnic Israel. 
God is sovereign over all the nations, of course, and he has purposes that concern them all. But national Israel is a focal point of his plan for the ages. Amen. From the call of Abraham, or Abraham, to the time of Yeshua's return to Jerusalem, to the reign of Yeshua upon David's throne in the coming kingdom, to the heavenly Jerusalem from above, with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel inscribed upon her gates, that's Revelation 21, 10, 12, Israel is in focus. Israel is always in focus. Israel will always be in focus. Their church, on the other hand, is a distinct body of people who are related to Elohim by means of the high priestly work of Yeshua on their behalf. But this group is not to be confused with Israel as a nation in the coming theater of the Acharit Hayamim, end of days. In the coming kingdom, reign of Yeshua as king over Israel, ruling from Jerusalem, the church doubtlessly will have a share, though the role of the church as the bride of Messiah will be different than that of ethnic Israel during the time of Yemot HaMashiach. For the dispensationalist, then, today Israel refers to a modern nation-state, secular Israel, that though being in temporary disobedience to the terms of the new covenant, are still the chosen people of, of Elohim, of Adonai, who have a divine right to the land of Israel by means of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. Elohim will ultimately restore national Israel to faith in the Mashiach Yeshua, Amen, at which time they shall be fully reinstated and receive the kingdom blessings promised to King David. A friendly criticism of separation theology is that its hard distinction between ethnic Israel and the church implies that there are three eternally distinct groups of people in the earth. Jews, Gentiles, and the Church, which is composed of both Jew and Gentile and formed into, quote, one new man, unquote. Jewishness is therefore regarded as ontological property that is preserved forever, though the exact status of a Jew, who is also a member of the Church, is obscured. I'm going to look into the definition of ontological. I'm curious. So according to the online dictionary, ontological means 1. Relating to the branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being. I'm not sure if this is applicable. Uh, and 2. Showing the relations between the concepts and categories in a subject area or domain. That might sound better. Ontology is the branch of philosophy that studies concepts such as existence, being, becoming, and reality. It includes the questions of how entities are grouped into basic categories and which of these entities exist on the most fundamental level. That definition was brought to you by Wikipedia. And now back to our show. So I'm going to read that again. Jewishness is therefore regarded as ontological property that is preserved forever, though the exact status of a Jew who is also a member of the church is obscured. Another criticism is that since, it's, since it ignores the concept of the faithful remnant of Israel, it tends to induce the church to disregard its Jewish roots. Since the covenants, blessings, and promises made to ethnic Israel are not to be applied directly to the church. In practice, this can have the unwitting effect of minimizing the relevance of the Old Testament scriptures or at least subordinating them to a lesser practical status than those of the New Testament epistles of Paul. More unfriendly critics of separation theology sometimes present strawman arguments that such dispensationalism divides the people of God by positing separate programs of salvation. 
one for the church and the other for national Israel. Sometimes this is caricatured as meaning that the church will one day inherit heavenly mansions while Israel will inherit the earth. This is unfair for a number of reasons, but primarily because dispensationalists believe that national Israel will one day come to saving faith in the Mashiach when she cries out, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, which is exactly what I started this podcast with. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. That's in Matthew 23, 37-39, and Luke 13, 35. Then the prophecy of the new covenant promised to national Israel will be fulfilled. Jeremiah 31, 31-37, and all Israel shall be saved. Romans 11, 25-26. So I have concluded the segment on separation theology. There is one more, third, theological option called remnant theology. I think I'm going to go ahead and push through and get into this. So you are going to get two for the price of one. The third theological option regarding the relationship of the church and Israel is to claim that the church and Israel overlap in some manner. In replacement covenant theology, the church is said to supersede Israel in such a way that Israel is abandoned with no redemptive future. In separation theology, there is a distinction between Israel and the church, but there is some question about how the two groups will interact, especially beyond the millennial reign of Yeshua into eternity. Remnant theology attempts to mediate these positions by understanding the church to be a subset of faithful ethnic Israel who receives Yeshua as the promised Messiah. This faithful subset of Israel is called the remnant, or the Israel of God. Galatians 6.6 So far, this is not sounding all that horrible. Let's press forward. So now on the website that I am getting all of this information from, from the one John J. Parsons who has put this all together about 15, 16 years ago, he puts a little schematic of one bigger circle which represents Israel, and then there's a circle inside that circle that represents the remnant, and the church is this remnant together with national Israel. Underneath said schematic, it says the Gentile church partakes of the covenants and promises given to remnant Israel, and Gentile Christians must identify with remnant Israel. I don't necessarily have a problem with the first point, and I kind of agree with the second point. I think that Gentile Christians should identify with remnant Israel to a certain extent. I'm going to push forward, and uh, we're going to find out together if there's anything weird or um, bizarre in this remnant theology. So let's continue. She'erit Israel, the remnant of Israel. The scriptures make a distinction between an ethnic Jew, i.e. one born Jewish, and one who is considered to be a member of She'erit Israel, the faithful remnant of Israel. This can be seen in the following schematic. So I'm going to describe this diagram as best as I possibly can. So we have three pairs of circles that are overlapping each other. One circle is the R, which means the chosen remnant, and the the other circle is ethnic Israel. And then there's a blue X. In the remnant Jew, you have the X inside the overlapping area between the R and the E. In the ethnic Jew, you have the X in the E, and not in the R, 
and in the Gentile, it's you're complete. It's completely out of those two circles. You are more than welcome to find this article, Israel and the Church, on HebrewForChristians.com. As can be seen from this said diagram, a person can be outside of the relationship of Israel altogether, a Gentile, within ethnic Israel by virtue of birth to a Jewish mother, that's two, or three, within both ethnic Israel, i.e. of Jewish lineage and part of the faithful remnant, as a Jew who trusts in the God of Israel. So I, I'm inclined to believe that I'm of the third party because I am both of ethnic Israel and part of the faithful remnant who believes and puts his trust in the God of Israel, Adonai Elohim, Elohei Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and I, and I put my trust in the Messiah that he sent. Logically, there is a fourth option here which will be discussed below. These distinctions are important because there are many who oversimplify the matter and confuse ethnic Israel with the remnant of Israel chosen by the grace of God. Romans 11.5. Ah, so this is where it gets good. The remnant of Israel is a sovereignly chosen subset of ethnic Israel that has been faithfully preserved by the Lord over the centuries. Its existence is evidenced in the Old Testament scriptures as is seen in the following cases. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Mm, yes, very true. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Certain people have to get over that little fact. Genesis 17:19. 2. Jacob was chosen over Esav, Genesis 28:13-15. Joseph was chosen over his brothers, Genesis 45:7. Israel was chosen as a nation at Sinai and a remnant preserved after the sin with the golden calf, Exodus 32. Caleb and Joshua were chosen among all those of the desert generation to enter into the promised land, Numbers 14:38. Elijah was told that God, Elohim, preserved 7,000 faithful during apostasy. 1 Kings 19.18 Ezekiel was, Ezekiel was told that a remnant would be preserved from the northern kingdom after their captivity. Ezekiel 37.19 The returning exiles from Babylon were chosen. Zechariah 8.5 That I did not know. Interesting. It is further evidenced in the New Testament. John the Baptist, Yohanan Hamatbil, or Yohanan the Immerser, distinguished between those merely born Jewish and those who are part of the remnant of Israel, Matthew 3.9. Elohim chose a remnant of Israel to receive the Messiah, Romans 11.5. After the destruction of the temple by the Romans, Elohim preserved the remnant of Israel, which has continued to this day, I believe that. Paul spoke of the remnant of Israel chosen by God's grace, Romans 2.28.29, Romans 9.27, Romans 11.5, and the one new man composed of Jews and grafted in Gentiles, Ephesians 2.15. During the coming great tribulation, Elohim will preserve a remnant of Israel, Revelation 7.4. It's important to realize that remnant theology understands that the church is grafted in or emplaced within remnant Israel and not the other way around, i.e. remnant Israel is not understood to be placed within the church. I happen to go along with this statement. I do believe it is 100% accurate and true. 
This is a vital distinction, since otherwise the church would be guilty of boasting that its branches have been grafted into the olive tree, rather than remembering that the root is what sustains the church. See Romans 11.18. Let me read that one more time, because this is the basis to my entire podcast show. In other words, a Jew doesn't need to disown his or her Jewishness in order to be a follower of Messiah. Moreover, moreover than this, I believe a Gentile should adopt a little bit more Jewishness out of respect for following the Jewish Messiah. My humble interjection. Not that they're bound by Torah, I have to make that very clear. I am not stating that Gentiles should be bound by Torah. They're not, but they are bound by the living Torah, who is Messiah Yeshua. With this distinction in mind, we can finish the diagram that reveals the logical possibilities between ethnic Israel and the remnant. So now we're looking at the same diagram with the circles, the pairs of circles, but now there's a fourth pair, which is called grafted in Gentile. So let's, let's dissect this. A person can be, one, outside of the relationship to Israel altogether, a Gentile, two, within ethnic Israel by virtue of birth to a Jewish mother, three, within both ethnic Israel, Jewish lineage, and as a part of the faithful remnant, as a Jew who trusts the God of Israel, or four is the new one, a Gentile who partakes of the blessings given to the faithful remnant of Israel. I like number four. The olive tree and the remnant chosen by grace. The statement of Paul that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, Romans 9, 6, means that a person can be a descendant of ethnic Israel but not a part of the remnant of Israel that was chosen by God for salvation in Mashiach, Messiah. In Romans 9, 1, Paul reveals his heartfelt desire to see all of Israel come to understand the truth of salvation as given through Yeshua, though he specifically mentions that godly remnant has always existed. Later, Paul explicitly asked the question of whether God was finished with ethnic Israel, to which he replied, God forbid, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Romans 11, 1, 5. Paul goes on to give the analogy of the olive tree to illustrate how the church is grafted into the remnant of Israel. The natural branches broken off represent unbelieving ethnic Israel, while the wild olive shoots grafted in among their others represent Gentiles who come to the faith in the Messiah. But note especially the prepositional phrase, among the others. These remaining branches represent remnant Israel, who never were separated from the supporting root, which represents the covenant promises given to the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as given to them by Adonai. This metaphor clearly indicates that the wild olive shoots, believing Gentiles, are placed within the remaining branches on the tree, believing Jews. The olive tree, in other words, pictures the covenantal saving program of God based on his faithfulness to Israel. 
Note also that Paul goes on to state that the restoration of the broken off branches is within the power and ultimate purposes of God. Romans 11:23-24, who has temporarily hardened ethnic Israel until all the wild all the wild olive shoots have been added to the remnant tree, 11:25, and then all of Israel will be saved, 11:26. I happen to agree with this line of thought. While it is true that ethnic Israel has rejected their Mashiach, a partial hardening of Israel, Romans 11.25, Paul consoles himself by reflecting that not all physical descendants of Abraham are made the inheritors of the covenantal blessings from the Lord, from Adonai. No, Abraham had two sons, but it was Isaac, not Ishmael, who was chosen. And Isaac also had two sons, but it was Jacob, not Esav, who was chosen. In other words, even though Ishmael and Asav were physical descendants of Abraham, they were not chosen to be inheritors of the blessings of God. Indeed, regarding the case of Yaakov and Esav, Paul goes further by saying that though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. Paul then quotes from Malachi, 1.3, Jacob I loved, but Esav I hated. That's a very good observation, by the way, and I happen to like that. Paul then asks the rhetorical question of whether all this might be unfair. After all, was it Esav's fault that he was rejected when God had himself foreordained that the blessing should not be his? Paul answers this by flatly saying that Adonai, the God of Israel, is sovereign and can choose to show mercy and grace to whomsoever he wills man's objections notwithstanding. In other words, God has the complete right to predestine outcome to suit his good pleasure and purposes, and mankind must simply accept his rule and reign in the universe. I don't have a problem with that necessarily, do you? If you do, you're listening to the wrong podcast. I kid, I kid. Being a physical descendant of Abraham is not enough to be a part of God's family since only the children of the promise are counted as God's offspring. And that even includes Gentiles as the prophet Hosea revealed. Those who are not my people I will call my people and her who was not beloved I will call children of the living God. Hosea 1.10 And did not the prophet Isaiah also cry out concerning Israel? Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Paul ends this line of thinking by saying that those who trust in the promise of God's salvation through the Messiah, HaMashiach, Yeshua HaMashiach, have attained righteousness by faith, but those who pursue their own righteousness based on the law, the Torah, will never succeed in reaching that goal since Yeshua alone is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. And then there's another uh, diagram that shows um, the lineage between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the remnants, and how Ishmael, Esav, and is ethnic Israel are kind of excluded, but then brought together. Both believing Jews and Gentiles are grafted in. Summary and Conclusion There are three basic theological options regarding the relationship between the Church and Israel. Replacement Theology, Separation Theology, and Remnant Theology. I personally am leaning towards number three. 
Separation theology, with its hard distinction between ethnic Israel and the church, implies that there are three distinct groups of people in the earth, Jews, Gentiles, and the church, which is composed of both Jew and Gentile and formed into one new man. Jewishness is therefore regarded as ontological property that is preserved forever, though the exact status of a Jew who is also a member of the church is obscured. I know my role. Separation theology also makes the church relatively indifferent to the status of ethnic Israel in this present dispensation, since the covenants, blessings, and promises made to ethnic Israel are not to be applied directly to the church. In practice, this can have the unwitting effect of minimizing the relevance of the Old Testament scriptures, or at least subordinating them to a lesser practical status than those of the New Testament epistles of Paul. Since replacement theology is based on covenant theology, the concept of the church takes priority over ethnic Israel, since it claimed to have existed within Israel in the form of the believing remnant. After Yeshua came, only those Jews that convert to Christianity are the legitimate Israel of God. Remnant theology, on the other hand, is dispensational in the outlook, but understands that the Gentile church is a new creation that is grafted into the covenants and blessings given to remnant Israel. So the two main points of replacement theology are the covenants and promises given to Israel are transferred to the Gentile church, which is not true. Jews must convert to Gentile Christianity, which is an absolute lie. As opposed to the two points of remnant theology, one being the Gentile church partakes of the covenants and promises given to remnant Israel, and two, Gentile Christians must identify with remnant Israel. Yes. As you can see, the differences regarding the identity of the remnant leads to profoundly different interpretations regarding the identity of the church. If the remnant of Israel is regarded as the church, then replacement covenant theology will seem appealing. However, it is evident that the ecclesia of Yeshua is something over and above the remnant of Israel, She'erit Israel, and most covenant theologies do not attempt to translate the word ecclesia, as found in the Septuagint, to literally refer to the church that Paul wrote about in his epistles. Indeed, it is a sad fact that most of these theologians resort to the Greek translation of the Tanakh rather than checking the Hebrew originals, since that might shed additional light on the bias of the translators who render the New Testament usage of ecclesia to mean church in our English Bibles. Hmm. Since the church is revealed as a new creation, a mystery of God that was brought into being through the ministry of Yeshua the Messiah, then it is evident that remnant theology is the most accurate of these views. That's what I thought. One consequence of this perspective is that Gentile Christians must return to the Jewish roots of their faith to show their love and appreciation for Israel. Yes. The metaphor of the olive tree indicates clearly that the church is indeed incorporated into the remnant of Israel. The Gentile church must repent regarding its arrogant attitude towards the Jewish people and express profound gratitude to God for their miraculous preservation over the centuries. Gentile churches of America and the world, are you paying attention? This passive-aggressive anti-Semitism that is coming out of your churches must cease and desist immediately in the name of Adonai, the Messiah that he sent in the spirit in which he came. Moreover, the Gentile church should stand 
with ethnic Israel by considering them an eschatological brethren, that is, future followers and partakers of Adonai the Messiah Yeshua. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, Romans 11.29, and if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, Romans 11.15. The overarching plan of the Lord is to redeem both Jews and Gentiles by means of the unconditional covenants and promises given to the faithful patriarchs of Israel. The Gentile church does not exist instead of Israel, replacement theology, nor does it exist outside of Israel, separation theology, but rather it is incorporated within the faithful remnant of Israel. Amen. Now, out of respect for this one John J. Parsons, I'm going to read his addendum to this article. Based on some feedback that he has received, he would like to stress the fact that he does not believe that Christians or Messianic Jews should become followers of rabbinical, i.e. Talmudic Judaism, nor does he think that this is an implication of the argument presented above. He is not a Judaizer and he, uh, he has an actual article online here that explicitly addresses the role of Torah in the life of the Christian today. It's very funny that that should be mentioned since my future podcasts are going to be dealing with this very thing. I have two books at my disposal. One is called Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus, and the other book that I have is called Rabbinic Judaism Debunked. Both books were published by OneForIsrael.org. The first book will help me fortify the stance that I believe that the Torah, the end of the Torah, the result, the end result of the Torah is Messiah Yeshua. And the second book is exactly that. This book will help you understand that there really isn't a thing called Rabbinic Judaism. It's man-made, it's an invention. The author of this article, John J. Parsons, states that perhaps it might help to understand that he wrote this article mainly to deal with those who have embraced certain aspects of covenant theology, and in particular, eschatological views that deny the future of national Israel. Sadly, this viewpoint is widespread in the church today, and many pastors maintain no special place of distinction for national Israel even after the second coming of Yeshua. Covenant theologians also confuse the nature of the church, seeing it as pre-existing even national Israel, and therefore get the analogy of the olive tree turned upside down. In other words, though this article has some flaws and even dangers, meaning it could be used to support a Judaizing view of Christianity, I consider the risk somewhat worth it since the implications of replacement theology and covenant theology seriously impugn the faithfulness of Adonai Elohim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the God of Israel and the Bible. Then got a little bit more for you. There's an eschatological postscript here that is interesting to me and I want to share it with you. So it starts like this. So what is the state of Israel after the death of Messiah? It seems I am asked, I meaning this, the author of this article, so I'm going to state that again, I did not write this article, this, is, this article was written by a John J. Parsons, and this is what he says. It seems that I am asked this question all the time. I attempt to answer it in the article presented above, though the implication might not be obvious. In short, God is not finished with national Israel, even though there is a partial hardening until the fulfillment of the Gentiles come to faith. Romans 11.25 
and then all of, all of Israel will be saved, Romans 11.26. The church is actually made a part of She'erit Israel, the faithful remnant of Israel, Romans 11.17, and not the other way around. The Gentile church should not call faithful Jews away from their heritage, but rather should seek to embrace Jewish heritage as its own, since they are made co-heirs of the covenants unconditionally given to the Jewish people. Ephesians 2, 11, 13. I'm going to read that again. The Gentile church should not call faithful Jews away from their heritage, but rather should seek to embrace Jewish heritage as its own, since they are made co-heirs of the covenants unconditionally given to the Jewish people. Ephesians 2, 11, 13. I simply could not have said that better myself. Amen. So what's our response to all of this supposed to be? Should we abandon the traditional Gentilish church and become Jewish in our liturgy, etc.? Not necessarily, though we should be careful to reject the errors of replacement theology and any liturgical elements that are based upon it. We do not abandon the church, but rather seek to remind her of who she really is. She is like an adopted child whose true father is a great king, though she thinks of herself as a Cinderella that is lowborn and unworthy. Or she's like the unnamed Shulamite woman in the Song of Solomon, Shir Shirim, who was passionately beloved of the hidden great king. Indeed, the church is called Kalat Mashiach, the Bride of Messiah, and is composed of all those from among the nations whom Elohim has sovereignly chosen to be in a love relationship with him. Ani ledodi vedodi li I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He pastures among the lilies. Shira Shirim, Song of Songs, 6-3 King David was served in his elderly years by a young woman named Avishag. Avishag, 1 Kings 1, 1-4-15 Who was perhaps this Shulamite woman from the city of Shunem. Later, King Solomon's first wife was perhaps the same beautiful nurse who served his father. Similarly, the church is precious to the Lord, typified by King Solomon, even as Avishag was indeed faithful to David in She'erit Israel. Perhaps one additional note on this subject should be made. There is a distinction to be made between the secular state of Israel and She'erit Israel, the chosen remnant, including those yet to be chosen in the future. This implies, among other things, that the secular state is not to be identified with any form of theocracy and does not itself hold any sacred status. God is sovereign over all the nations, including secular Israel, of course, but the secular state of Israel is actually a part of the Acharitayamim end times theater of operations. This is evidenced by many of the New World Order designs found on secular Israel's governmental buildings, most particularly the Israeli Supreme Court building. Now, if you will venture to the website that I am reading from, HebrewForChristians.com, Israel and the Church, you will see this photograph of the building of the Supreme Court in Israel, and there is a green pyramid with the all-seeing eye right on top of the roof, for everybody to see. If you look at the photo, you will notice the key symbol of the all-seeing eye of providence on the roof of the building, which can possibly be traced back to Egyptian mythology and the eye of Horus. 
This is essentially the same symbol used on the Great Seal of the United States, which openly avows adherence to Novus Ordo Seclorum, a Latin phrase that can be translated as a new order of the ages or even as a new world order. Isn't that interesting? And if any of you have been paying attention to the um, really abysmal news here lately, certain key figures in our world theater have been throwing that terminology around very freely here as of late. New World Order. The Messiah of evil will come and deceive many in Israel as their long-awaited Mashiach. This is the Antichrist. Perhaps he will finally broker a true peace agreement in the Middle East, but he will ultimately betray the Jewish people, much like Haman did, or as the Greek Antiochus Epiphanes did, causing the Jewish people to flee for their lives. Only after the Jewish people cry out, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai, in reference to the true Messiah, Yeshua, will Israel be saved during this period of great tribulation. Matthew 23:29, Luke 13:35. Then shall the prophecy of Zechariah be fulfilled. I will pour out upon the kingship of David and the population of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look to me, the one they have pierced. They will lament for him as one laments for an only son. There will be a bitter cry for him like the bitter cry for a firstborn. Zechariah 12:10. That is in our Old Testament. That is in the Tanakh. One final note. The secular nation of Israel has a special place in the plan and purposes of God, despite their present status as enemies of the gospel. The Jewish people are still beloved by God on account of the zchut, the right, of the fathers, as Paul notes in Romans 11.28. And while it's true that the Jewish people have occupied the land numerous times in history, it's clear we are dealing with something a bit different at this juncture in history. After all, Israel had been in exile for nearly 2,000 years, but now is a sovereign state in their theater of the world. I don't think this is a coincidence of history, and the state of Israel should not be compared to the status of some earlier times in history when the Jewish people were Toshavim in the land of Palestine. So there you have it, my dear listeners. This was a uh, lesson on two other theologies, separation theology, which I do not agree with, and remnant theology, which I happen to agree with. I actually uh, would consider myself a remnant theologist. As I've stated before, the passive-aggressive anti-Semitism that is coming out of the Gentile churches of America and the world must cease and desist immediately in the name of Adonai Elohim the Messiah who he sent in the spirit in which he came. The first step in doing this is to get rid of all Christian denominations and embrace the Jewishness of Messiah Yeshua. So that's it. This concludes episode 7 of Finding Higher Ground. I hope you enjoyed listening. I hope you learned something today. I certainly did. Episode 8 will be following shortly hereafter, in which I will introduce to you my secret weapon to fight this so-called passive-aggressive anti-Semitism within the Gentile Church of the world and America specifically. And this secret weapon is the Complete Jewish Study Bible by one David Stern. I emphatically encourage anyone to acquire a copy. It's very easy to find. All you got to do is go to Google and type in 
complete Jewish study Bible. This Bible is rather easy to find through different venues and go get it and you will thank me later. I promise. I pray from the bottom of my heart that the God of Israel reveal himself to you, reveal his love for you. May you hastily come to the realization of who Messiah Yeshua really is and understand his sacrifice that he made for you. I will leave you, dear listener, with the ironic blessing. Yivarchecha Adonai veyishmerecha, Ya'er Adonai panav elecha veyichunecha, Yisa Adonai panav elecha veyasem lecha shalom. May Adonai bless you and keep you. May Adonai shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May Adonai lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Number 6, 24, 26. Stay tuned for episode 8. God be with you. Ishtamea.